Thank you to everyone for your patience. Uh, we were just having some technical difficulties with uh, Richard's sound. Uh, right. Ri Richard, can you hear me now? I now have it, Scott. I'm sorry it took so long. Oh, no, it's great. I'm glad it, it's uh, working. Uh, thanks to everyone for joining us to uh, Morals and Markets. Glad to see everyone. Uh, just want to remind everyone to keep yourself muted while Dr. Salzman is giving his opening remarks. Um, you know, we'll take questions and comments. You can use the chat. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll post some uh, links to, uh, you know, some of the sources and supplementary readings as we get along. Thanks, everyone. Uh, Richard, I'm just going to throw it to you to go ahead and get started. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you all for joining. As I usually do, I'll spend about 20 25 minutes uh, on an introduction and then open it up to questions, comments, and criticisms. Uh, some of you may know this part of this is for this opening 30 minutes is for the Morals and Markets podcast. So Scott and the team at TAS have been very good about transforming this after we do it from a, a kind of visual to a purely audible uh, audio, I should say, version of this, uh, which goes out over all the uh, uh, the various platforms, which is very nice. So that's why uh, I, I, I tend to do this kind of intro. The other thing is I, I in the announcement, of course, I give a abstract, I give a, a summary of what I'm going to say. So I usually just read that into the record so, uh, because, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on it and I concisely describe what I'm going to talk about. So I usually start with that. So I'm going to start with that and I'm going to uh, quote various people over the years on immigration. That's the topic tonight. Open versus closed borders, whether that's a false alternative or not, which I think it is, but we'll talk about the philosophy and the politics and the economics of this. This is a perfect topic if you understand the message and the meaning of morals and markets. Morals meaning ethics, markets meaning economics. Um, the overlap of the two is very common and it's fun to talk about. And uh, if you don't know the ethics, uh, you can't really be informed about the economics of it and vice versa. And of course, politics comes in to the extent it institutionalizes uh, morals. So here's how I describe tonight's topic, which is a capitalist approach. By that, I mean a pro-capitalist, pro-individualist, pro-liberty approach to immigration and borders. And uh, by the way, I found this much more controversial within right wing and including subset of that objectivist circles than I expected. I did not know this until uh, a more intensive investigation recently. Over the years, there's been more of a Democrat versus Republican view of this, but within the right there's some interesting contrast. Anyway, here's how I describe tonight's topic. A free society welcomes manageable flows of goods, capital, and people over its borders, whether incoming or outgoing. A state is defined as the institution with a monopoly on the legitimate use of retaliatory force within a specific territory. That last part's very interesting. This last feature requires fixed and protected borders, I think. Now, an indispensable job of government legitimate government, includes managing the borders, setting liberal terms, processing the flows, and interdicting dangers, whether hostile actors or transmissible infectious diseases. America's most capitalist era, which I've defined as World War, excuse me, Civil War to World War I, 1865 to 1915, coincided with what I call the Ellis Island model of immigration. And we need that model again, instead of what I think of as the false choice today we have of open borders, which involves almost no processing, whatever. And there are some objectivists who endorse that or closed borders, 
uh, with uh, what I think is a despotic type walls and just uh, banishments of, of certain peoples. So that's the descriptor. And I want to, this will sound like ancient history, but it isn't because the principles are the same. I want to start with a quote, a couple of quotes from a, uh, an essay from uh, TAS's founder, the Atlas Society founder, David Kelly, who in Barron's, in the mid-1980s, when immigration was an issue as well. Now, this is during the Reagan administration, and the question was whether there should be a deal struck uh, on having border reform plus amnesty for existing illegals in the country. Now, David Ghost, that was called the Mazzoli-Simpson Act, and I won't go through the details of that act because it's it's kind of dated. But I think the principles that David names in Barron's, and the essay is called Open Society, open borders is very interesting. Here's a couple of things David said. Again, David Kelly, quote, it takes an unusual degree of self-confidence, ambition, and independence to leave one's natural soil for a, a native soil, for an uncertain future in a new land with different customs and language, unquote. Later in the essay, xenophobia, fear of foreigners, Xenophobia has been the not always silent partner of economic hostility toward immigration, unquote. Uh, another quote, the diverse customs and creeds and traditions that immigrants bring are great democratic strengths, but custom does not make the man, merely the manner. I love that. Then he says later, quote, the sole consensus required in a free society is a common desire for freedom itself, the right to think, the right to vote, the right to work. And those are precisely the values that draw people here in the first place, unquote. And I'll finish with this last quote, very precious, very uh, profound. Our own commitment to political and economic freedom is enriched by the presence among us of those who could not take them for granted uh, in their native state, unquote. Now that's 1985, but I think the principles named by Professor Kelly, David Kelly, are relevant even today. But now let me fast forward. And these are taken from the readings. I hope you saw, I linked two readings. One of them was David's and there are others in there. Uh, but one from Ed Powell is very interesting because Ed Powell is an objectivist. Now this is more recent, this is 2016. And the title of the Powell piece very interestingly, is Objectivism and an Immigration Policy of Self-Interest for America Today. Now, Powell is very, this is a very interesting essay. I hope you got a chance to read it. He says, he, quite correctly, the Roman Empire was overrun by barbarians in uh, 406, 410 AD. And he says, the Western civilization was dark thereafter for a thousand years. True enough. True enough. But then he goes on to say, Fast forward to December 2016. Now, if I have my history right, that's about a month after Trump was elected. And he says, history is repeating itself. I'm quoting now from Ed Powell. Bands of barbarian migrants have invaded Europe and ravaged its cities using terrorism and the doctrine of al-Hajib, civilization, holy war by immigration. In the U.S. also, women are raped in public. Theaters and malls are being bombed. No-go zones exist where migrants conduct warfare with impunity. The lights of the West are going out again. 
says Powell. But no one seems to know what can be done. What is needed is a philosophy of reason, he says. And then he says, that philosophy is Ayn Rand's philosophy. Well, that's mine. Sure, that's Dr. Kelly's. So what is this conflict? What is this contrast between the Powell view and whatever view I'm going to extend tonight? But more from this, now listen, quote, it's current leading advocates. This is Powell. The current leading advocates of objectivism, are all, he says, are almost universally on the side of the invading barbarians, unquote. Now, I'm not quite sure who he's referring to, but there are citations later. The most prominent advocates of objectivism seem unable or unwilling, he says, to form a more principled defense of Western civilization based on Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Quote, the only method of saving Western civ from the savages invading it by restricting immigration to only the is by restricting immigration. Now, listen to this proposal only to those individuals likely to be compatible with the values that undergird it. Now, notice this is an ideological uh, litmus test. I'm not saying that negatively. I'm just describing it. And now this is interesting. And Powell says to expel those immigrants who by their advocacy and actions seem only to undermine freedom in the U.S. and Western civilization as a whole, unquote. And then Powell summarizes, I'll be damned if I'll sit back and watch people who claim to be advocates of Ayn Rand's objectivism, who cheer for the barbarian invasion on principle without pointing out their rationalistic arguments uh, and the suicidal effects of the West if their policies are adopted. Now, what he's referring to is the argument for complete, open, unrestricted immigration, which he, I'll name in a moment, name names that he names are advocating this. But then he also says, quote, the objective community is as divided on this issue as on no other issue. I'm not sure about that. I might We might include foreign policy in Ukraine and elsewhere. But anyway, with the most prominent and vocal proponents of open immigration accusing those of us, Powell, on the other side of every known moral fault, including calling us racists, unquote. Um, Scott, I'm not sure is that, are objectivists calling each other racists over immigration? You would know better than I. Possibly that's happening. Then, then he says, yes. okay, okay, thanks for the confirmation. Then he says, quote, the number, I'm not, um, by the way, I'm, I don't want to mean to be ridiculing Powell. One of the reasons I picked this essay is this is very well researched, actually, very well done. And the idea that he's looked into the objectivist community, and, and this is really important stuff. Quote, the number of prominent open immigration objectivists is too large to survey. But Harry Binswanger is the most prominent, Binswanger is the most prominent objectivist advocating completely open borders, unquote. Now, then he quotes Binswanger. So this is interesting because Harry Binswanger, objectivists know who he is, quoting Binswanger directly. Quote, ideally, entry into the U.S. should be unrestricted, unregulated, and unscreened, exactly as entry is into Connecticut from New York. There must be, quote, no detention at the borders, no demand to produce, quote, papers or passports, uh, because such procedures violate the right of the innocent, unquote. That's Benzwanger. 
Um, I think I have the source to this later because there's links in the Powell essay. So Powell's not just making this stuff up. He gives you links, which is nice. But then he says, not only Vinswanger, Trzinski, Biddle, Bernstein, Jerome Brook are, he says, for unrestricted immigration. I would note that I have seen in Brook, and he actually cites this, three classes of people who should be excluded or at least vetted or checked. And this is my view as well. Quote, one, terrorists. Terrorists or those who threaten national security of America. Two, criminals. Now, how you document their criminal record abroad is maybe a practical problem, but okay. And those with infectious diseases. Okay, by the way, those three are part of the Ellis Island model. Uh, for all intents and purposes, that's pretty much what the Ellis Island model, which was, as I said, um, roughly 1870s to 1920 did. And that was it. There was no litmus test as to ideology. Now, the litmus test as to ideology is a very interesting thing because that's become on the radar. It's long been on the radar, as you know, of conservatives. Conservatives who will say uh, immigration has to have another test. It isn't just criminals, terrorists, uh, the diseased, but those who are going to wreck our culture, those who are going to um, contaminate or degrade the American culture, the American way of life with their ideas, their voting patterns. On this issue, it's very interesting because um, Powell points out a debate between your own Brooke and Leonard Peacock in 2013. Now, listen to this from Peacock. Very interesting. Peacock, you know, is a prominent objectivist on the philosophy of Ayn Rand, his book from 1991, but earlier, 1982, the ominous parallels where Peacock says the danger is not that America is going socialist, but fascist, not the complete ownership of the means of production, but private ownership in principle, but then government, massive government controls of, of the Nazi type variety. Oh, no, okay, but on t in 2013, in this debate, this is what Peacock says. Now listen to this closely, because this implies a litmus test ideologically, politically. Quote, we are teetering on the edge of dictatorship. This is Leonard Peacock. If the Democrats continue to have their political power or to grow their political power, we will be over that edge. Whether you like it or not, it's also the case that 80% of Hispanics uh, in the U.S., whether rich or poor, whether self-made or not, are reliably and continually voting Democratic. Whatever legislation you're considering, whether it's considered fair or unfair in any other aspect, if you're talking about a bill that will infuse into America a massive amount of Democrat supporters, you thereby guarantee the destruction of this country. That is what immigration means today. There's no use consulting theory about this. We're near the end. Now it's just a matter of buying time. Unquote. Uh, think on that for a moment. We can be that can be part of our discussion. But you know, really, how I interpret this is, whatever the arguments for and against immigration, if you believe in the kind of the self-interest principle of just as an individual should pursue their rational self-interest, so should a country. And if the country is America, and if the essence of America is liberty and individual rights and constitutionally limited government, 
then the immigration policy, actually all policies, but including immigration policy, should adhere to that principle. In other words, protecting those things. Now, how you do that, this is a very detailed issue of political economy, the political economy of immigration, the political economy of border management, if you will. But I do think it's a legitimate government function. We're not an anarchist after all. But now Powell says something also very interesting, because those of you in the audience who uh, read Ayn Rand and study Ayn Rand closely, how interesting biographically she is, uh, I think other than Alexander Hamilton, I can't think of an immigrant more uh, influential to America than Ayn Rand, who emigrated here in 1926. Hamilton, of course, immigrated in, I don't know, 1770s or so and helped build the original country. But Ayn Rand came here from Soviet Russia in 1926 at age 21. Interestingly, Powell says quite correctly, he says, quote, unfortunately, Ayn Rand never wrote anything about the philosophic or historical principles behind immigration or its restrictions. And that's, unquote, and that's true and interesting. And I wish she had, because uh, it's so so interesting. So interesting is the, the issue of the state, the role of the state, individuals, rights. Uh, she endorsed this definition of the state as the legitimate use of uh, force within boundaries, which came from Max Weber, actually, 1920s. So she endorsed that view, that standard view of the definition of the state. But not to have written much on this, especially when it was so personally relevant to her, is kind of interesting but also highlights the point made by the Atlas Society, David Kelly, Stephen Hicks, and others, that much more must be done in objectivism. There's much more to be done in extending and applying objectivism. And here's an obvious case of it. You cannot go to Ayn Rand and get your marching orders on this issue. But she did say at the Ford Hall Forum, where she appeared annually almost for many years, 1973, she was asked specifically about this. And she said, quote, I oppose, quote, closing the border or, quote, forbidding immigration. And then just added, quote, this is much more of a personal point, perfectly understandable, quote, how could I ever advocate that immigration should be restricted when I wouldn't be alive if it were restricted, unquote. I love that quote. I love that quote. She was basically saying, I'd never be here. I would never get out of Russia. I would never get to America. Uh, however, notice that answer is very personal. I wouldn't say it's subjective. It's factual. It's true. But it's not, it shouldn't be, right? Normally, you would not say the basis of my views on immigration or my personal history or my personal story. But um, it's not really a philosophic defense. It's more of a perfectly understandable, kind of lovely, wonderful, emotional reflection by Ayn on immigration. Um, uh, now, just let me, I have maybe five more minutes. So let me give you, let me go back to a more radical, some uh, one I actually disagree with because it was cited by Powell, but also it's an extreme view of it by Binswanger. And we can use that maybe to leverage. So in Forbes, in 2013, so this was a big issue around that time for objectivists, Ben Swanger wrote, anti-immigration rhetoric frighteningly reveals education's failure, unquote. So part of this was just 
blaming bad education on people's ignorance about immigration. But the point is that in this essay, we get, as Powell indicates, the Binswanger view of this, uh, which is being resisted by many objectivists. And I would resist this as well. Now, listen to this closely because it is based on a philosophic argument. So it's not implausible. Quote, this is from Binswanger, the principle of individual rights demands open immigration. Implementation means phasing out all limitations on immigration, unquote. Now notice the word all. So I'm immediately reading, I'm reading this, I'm immediately thinking, wait a minute, what about objectively? What about terrorists? What about criminals? What about the infectious diseased? But in a, new, a line right after that, he says, quote, entry into the U.S. should ultimately be free for any foreigner. Okay, here's the qualifier. Absent objective evidence of criminal intent and infectious disease. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's not all. It's all except, but it's criminal intent and infectious disease. I, if you put in criminal intent, if you include in their terrorism, I guess it's similar to my standard. But that is not really complete open immigration. So, so one of the things we might want to discuss when I open this up to the audience is what do we really mean by open versus closed? Uh, and I'm arguing for managed. I almost hate to always hate to take the middle position because it just sounds like so cowardly. You know, I'm not at this extreme, I'm not at the other extreme, I'm in the middle. And, but I really do think this is an issue. This is a perfectly legitimate government function. It should manage the borders and the anarchic chaos and brutality and inhumanity of what we have today, which I would characterize as anarchy at the border, is so wrong. But the idea of, and they leverage off of each other, don't they? The other side will say, build a wall and stop every damn movement possible because the anarchists are so bad. Well, we're not for anarchy or totalitarianism, are we? We're not for, uh, you know, Berlin-type walls, uh, nor are we for anarchy. So I think it's okay to, for the objective view to be, we're for individual rights, but we're also for government uh, performing its proper functions. And the U.S. government really is not doing that. There is legal immigration, but if you look at the hurdles associated with getting in it goes way beyond uh the people who get in legally you know who go through the process who go through the documentation and stuff they they tell a story of it takes years it's really burdensome now this is not an excuse for coming over the borders illegally i, I don't like any future would-be american to have their first act to be violating the laws of the country it's a very bad way to start it's not the ellis island model way to start um but um, I just want to mention that to open up debate. Now, lastly, on Ben's way, just to leave a little more philosophic stuff in here. Quote, every individual, he says, has rights as an individual, not as a member of this or that nation. That's interesting. Because we want to resist nationalism, right? We want to be for individualism. And yet the nation state, as they call it, the modern form nation state, 
it has for the most part, I wouldn't say universally, for the most part been a good thing for individual rights, the nation state. Uh, we can talk about that, but Benzwanger goes on. One, a quote, one has rights not by virtue of being an American, but by virtue of being a human, unquote. I like that, actually. I like that, but is that an argument for saying, playing open the borders? More from Benzwanger, quote, a foreigner has rights just as much as an American does. Seeking employment in America should not be a criminal act. Okay, unquote. And then finally, to forcibly exclude those seeking peacefully to trade value for value with us is a violation of the rights of both parties, unquote. So that, I think, is an important thing to keep in mind, too. Those We always think of those coming over the border, whether they have rights or not. But those coming over the borders are also potential allies of us, potential employees of us, potential romantic partners of us. And you, it is true, you could argue, that the anti-immigration approach uh, violates the rights of domestics to have access to the rest of the world. And if we know that economically, if we know that, hey, 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 Trump, Trump with the trade wars, why are you forbidding us? access to goods and services sent to us peacefully by others. We know that argument, right? We're very good at that argument. But why isn't that also true of individuals? Why isn't that also true of people trying to get into this country? And then back to David Kelly, those especially, and this is really, David's argument is very influential to me. I've had this, I've had this view a long time. Imagine the people who come here I don't mean the terrorists. I don't mean the infected. Uh, I don't mean the criminals. The predominant number of people who come here are really remarkable. They have to be uh, remarkable individuals, whether they vote Democrat or not. I am sympathetic with Leonard. Of like, man, I really have to bite my tongue and wonder. I really wish they wouldn't vote Democrat because I'm suspicious of Democrats voting for tyranny in this country. I, I believe with, with Leonard that that's their inclination. And so um, it's a real litmus test to say, oh, my God, OK, they're coming in. I want them to come in. They're not terrorists. They're not diseased. They're not criminals. But God damn it, they're probably Democrats. And then the next logical step of, oh, my God, and then they're voting for the party in this country, which I think, in my view, Scott and I have talked about this, are more inclined to bring us in that direction. But let, I open it up to discussion. Is that a further litmus test that we should apply when we talk about immigration policy. So I'm past my time, Scott. I think I've gone 31 minutes. And, and so I promise to stop. So for the podcasters out there, I hope these ideas are interesting to you. Um, subscribe, donate, join, if you can, the Atlas Society and all the great work it does, if you can. And for now, I'll just sign off and turn it over to the group. Thank you, Scott. Great. Uh, great presentation. Uh, I've got questions. I see some hands going up. I do want to defer to David since you mentioned him. Maybe see, uh, you know, where he is forty years later. Uh, great on the piece. Well, thank you, Scott. And thanks, Richard, for a great presentation. I, uh, I, I have a lot of questions. Uh, this, I think, this is a very difficult issue. Um, but um, I agree that you know, the a, a country 
uh, a nation and the nation state, as you described it, is uh, the form of political uh, organization that we have. And it's worked better than, you know, earlier tribal or, or uh, um, empire type arrangements is good. And it entails uh, that the borders have to be managed and they should be managed in a way to encourage um, immigration, I think, along the lines you're talking about. One thing that I would suggest, and this I, uh, this is a talk I heard by, I think it was uh, Craig Biddle um, a couple of years ago, that um, the solution is to remove the, re the country level and area level restraints that were imposed in the 1920s and, and afterwards. And um, you just got rid of those and the quotas that were imposed and are right. still operative. Yeah. Um, but also protect the borders, uh, have points of entry uh, with with uh, fewer requirements and, you know, the no terrorists, no criminals, no infectious diseases. Sounds reasonable to me. But otherwise, you know, you're free to come, but you have to uh, earn your, you know, you come and work and, and live here peacefully. If if you don't, so that there's a lot of questions surrounding that. One, um, one, well, first of all, I invite you to comment on that uh, idea that there should be points of entry and that's where you have to go. Uh, outside that, the borders between, you know, Mexico and Texas, they're closed. You cross them, you're illegal, and we catch you and send you back. But come to uh, the points of entry and go through the minimal process, you know, um, right. then um, you're welcome. Yeah, I like the phrase, David, points of entry. You know, imagine people like Ellis Island processing, yeah. processing centers, you know, rational, orderly, clean, welcoming processing centers i i don't think i'm actually against uh you know some kind of walls between the processing centers you know to make sure people don't come over illegally but the the maybe one of the reasons they want walls border to border you know end to end on the other side is um they haven't developed a system of processing and if there were a system of processing exactly. there'd be right there'd be less people coming over uh, illegally and recklessly, if you will, and all the uh, human abuse associated with that, including, uh, you know, smuggling operations and human trafficking and stuff like that. David, the question I have for you is, I, I think I agree with you on stop um, isolating countries or nations and putting up quotas. I remember in 18, I think it was like 1882 or so that was done against the Chinese. I mean, just pure racist Chinese things. Yeah. So, so e even in that period of of reasonable liberality, if you will, one of the first major restrictions on U.S. immigration was against the Chinese, and then by nineteen, but so the Ellis Island model wasn't pure, but uh, but then um, nineteen twenty four, a couple of years before Ayn came here, the immigration restriction act that was also very restrictive. But the question I have for you, David, is on, and this kind of relates to foreign policy. Would you agree that the State Department, that one of its proper functions is to identify countries, not individuals, although they can also do individuals and groups, and classify them as either enemies of the United States or not? 
Now, however that's defined, if it's objectively defined, say, as, I don't know, existential threats to the United States. So, you know, through history, we might have put the Soviet Union on that list. We might have put, uh, you know, I don't know, Cuba under Castro in the 60s on the list, whatever. But if that's true, can is it okay there, David, to have a kind of blanket, which is what a quota is, no Soviets come in, but but only because we have pre-designated that country as a threat. Is that something you'd oppose as well? Um, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought much about it, but I would my top of my head, I'd say no, because um the people fleeing Soviet Russia or now Cuba or Venezuela are yeah. exactly some of the people we right. most like to have. Right. Um, yes. We want right. to be a haven for them, a way yeah. to get, escape tyranny. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. and those who want to escape tyranny tend as, you know, uh, uh, you quoted one of my early things about people who immigrate, it takes yeah. a lot of courage and independence. And um, to do that, right. someone right. maybe a little less fleeing a tyranny where, you know, the oppression is, immediate and in your face but oh um, yeah oh, so famous goes. famous cases david like uh Werner von braun who leaves nazi germany and helps us build a rocket program right or einstein or the guys who worked on the uh manhattan project or exactly. you know nathan sharansky or solzhenitsyn yeah i yes yes yeah that's a good argument the reason i'm brought it up is this comes up a lot whenever I'm asked on foreign trade, should we trade with China? Should businessmen should be held accountable, you know, for trading with Iran or not the issue of sanctions, you know, and I always revert, I think safely, but maybe not completely justifiably to the idea of, well, it is a proper function of the government, specifically the state department to identify objectively as possible, not recklessly. Um, country classify countries abroad as friends or enemies and everything in between and then that would guide policy you know in other words the government couldn't like unilaterally say don't trade with china because if the government is also you know has china in the wto and it has diplomatic yeah. relations with china you know and all the things associated with diplomacy right do you recognize them as a legitimate regime or not we know that fdr was the first one to recognize the Soviet Union as a legitimate regime, but that was 1933. So yeah. for six, for 16 years, uh, the U.S. government did not officially recognize the Bolsheviks. Right. So I mean, in those 16 years, could they legitimately say, you know, any businessman trading with the Bolsheviks was a, uh, you know, uh, undermining? You could prosecute them, in other words, or prevent them. That's the only reason I brought it up, David. Uh, yeah. That's not quite the same. Your argument is. Okay, you can designate the USSR that way, but why would you not take in uh, people fleeing it? That's right. a good point. Yes. Great. Yeah, I think um, you're, that that distinction is very important, Richard, in foreign policy issues. Um, and you know, you and I have disagreed on that, but uh, on those issues. But I think your point on that is is really good. I'm not sure it applies to immigration in quite the same way because right. Yeah. Um, well, but in any case, let me just. Uh, yeah. I don't want to take up too much time, but let me ask you another no, question. Take, take all the time you need, David. It's something that I've often heard, and maybe not so much recently, but back in the day, people were against um, even a, a controlled but relative more open um, objectivist uh, 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 immigration policy. 
is that, well, what about the people who come? We have a vast welfare state. Yeah. What about the people who come and uh, just want to get on the welfare wagon? Uh, when I wrote that article in Barron's in, in the 80s, um, I did some research and I the the information I had from economists like yourself is was that actually they pay more immigrants pay more yeah. taxes than yeah. they take in in social benefits. But right. Right. that's that's a very temporal consideration. What about that issue of, you know, we don't have a free economy totally. We have a mixed economy welfare state. So. What about immigrants who are coming to exploit that? Yeah, and Milton Friedman, the great free market economist who was mixed on many things, including money, but he famously said, I would be for complete open immigration if we didn't have a welfare state. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's the Ellis Island model. How interesting. The Ellis Island model, basically, was open immigration except for those three exceptions. Um because you knew there was no welfare magnet. You didn't come into New York City and run to the welfare office. You came into New York City and you usually ran to the language centers. And if you were Italian, the first thing you did was learn English. Why? Out of complete self-interest, so you could go get a job. You know, and it's true that people did congregate into things like Little Italy, you know, and, they, you know, they had these little uh, tribal parts of the city, but they were still there, right? And uh, that's an issue, isn't it, David? Uh, I heard uh, someone said to me the other day when I gave them my list of uh, filters, uh, terrorism, uh, criminality, and if you can find a criminal record, and then infectious diseases, the fourth thing they added was exactly this. They said, well, how about you cannot access the welfare rolls? Well, you see how difficult this is. And by the way, courts have been challenged on this. California had a, had a proposition doing uh -huh. this thing in the 1990s. California had a proposition uh, saying that. And the courts struck it down as once you're in America, you can't pick and the, the laws and the rules, including America, can't pick and choose as to what people get benefits or not. If they're employed, imagine you're employed and day one you start paying Social Security benefits. The Social Security taxes, I should say, the payroll tax, right? Yeah. Then the argument would be, but you can't collect benefits. Or it's true that one of the things they take out of your paycheck also is a premium for unemployment insurance in case you ever become unemployed. Well, what if a year into your immigration uh, history, you become unemployed? You can't go to the unemployment office, according to this standard. And yet the person has been paying in. Um, I'm sympathetic to the idea. But it, but it's been struck down as unequal treatment, and this is this is another issue here. Of course, is residency versus citizenship. That's a whole different discussion. What, just yeah. because you're here, uh, you might even be here legally. You're not yet a citizen. That's another level we can talk about. But David, would you put in restrictions on access to the welfare state? No, on the I, no, I would not. And for the reason that you cited, um, at most. I would consider something about, you know, a, a time you have to be in this country for a certain amount of time or which is part of the citizenship requirements or become a citizen. Um, but, I, you know, I you can't tax someone without allowing them to get the benefits that taxes are paying for. I, I, that seems so unjust to me that um, I don't see how to do that properly. I what mean, 
And one of the things they complicated. And one of the things I really liked about your 1985 essay, David, which I think is exactly relevant and just as relevant today, you pinpointed how uh, part of that bill, and this is still true today, kind of puts the burden on the employers to out the, you know, to document uh, illegals or not, and to not hire illegals or not. And uh, I think the way you put it is, um, you know, you're, the government should be doing this job and it's forcing businesses to do it. And that's improper. Uh, do you remember that argument? I, I assume you I do. Yeah, that was one of the things that still... gave me the my opening line that uh, uh, it's a no win that blows nobody good. Yes. Yeah. But the Simpson Mazzoli bill is an example. <laughs> um, and the employer thing really got my goat. So. Great. And well, and for, the, for those of you who don't know the history, that bill in some form was eventually passed a year later in 86. I looked it up. And and the argument today was Reagan was had. Reagan was rolled because Reagan basically said, I'm not really for amnesty. For the reasons David Kelly mentioned in the essay, you're only incentivizing people. It's like paying for hostages. You're only incentivizing people to get into the country if you're going to, you know, uh, drop the charges later. But Reagan struck the deal of saying, I will uh, sign off on the amnesty if you actually restrict and put in border management. Reagan was not a Trump. Reagan was not a Trump guy who was against immigration. He wanted what David and I want, which is managed borders. And the Congress didn't do it. Congress did the <laughs> Congress did the amnesty and then reneged <laughs> on the border control. So Reagan felt like he was exploited. But that's ultimately what happened to that bill, David. You know that, David. Um, yeah. So, surprise, surprise. Uh, to this day, you hear this debate. It hasn't changed a bit, right? To this day, you'll hear people say, uh, we need comprehensive border immigration reform before we will do anything about the illegal immigrant, right? So those are the two sides staking out. And, and one group, Democrats, will not do a border reform. And uh, and therefore, they keep flooding in, depending on who the president is. And you get Trump in and there's almost no border movement. And then you get Biden in, there's this massive uh, over the top border movement. So that alone suggests that there's arbitrary government going on here, that it really shouldn't be the case. Right. That border is that either totally constipated or totally porous, depending on who's in, who the president is. That sounds like that does sound. <laughs> And that sound art that does sound arbitrary and not the rule of law right um uh, okay scott go ahead yeah i do want to uh open it up to uh people with their hands up clark was first so clark thank you for your patience yes uh thank you so much uh well scott and richard and david uh excellent excellent topic excellent conversation uh, there's so many questions i have but let me limit it to one uh richard would you say how much of the crisis at the border that we have and had many you know it's been ongoing for many many years how much of it is actually in some ways the result of the controls themselves and by that i mean is you know if, if we just had a much higher level of legal immigration and i'm thinking in particular here richard about hurricane katrina you know that this was late august 2005 when you know like I think a million, over a million people in Louisiana and the Gulf Coast that, you know, they had to leave 
immediately because, you know, their homes obviously were underwater. A lot of these folks that came from Louisiana, they came to well, my hometown of Houston and uh, in, in the hundreds of thousands. Now, they didn't need visas. They did. Obviously, they were citizens, so they could easily avail themselves of, of any kind of social welfare benefits. And yet, as I recall in real time, since I do remember, you know, 18, this was 18 years ago. I don't yeah. remember any, I don't remember any crisis at all. I mean, essentially there was an open border, quote unquote, between Louisiana and Texas. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I emphasize again, you know, these, these weren't rich. <laughs> these were basically lower middle class uh, minority folks Right. Who, you know, obviously, they had to leave because their houses were underwater. And yet, I, you know, it just wasn't anything like you see, you know, you turn on Fox News and it's like it's horrible. You know, you see, you know, the coyotes, the cartels, the, the, the human traffickers. And so so how much of if we just had a better, you know, if we just didn't have these artificially low uh, immigration quotas, would it be more like what happened after Hurricane Katrina? I think you're right. I think when I research this, I find it's a very tragic, almost um, vicious cycle or circle, however you want to put it, spiral downward. It is true that the actual hurdles for legal immigration have gotten higher and higher and more complex and bureaucratic. And it's like uh, it's similar to socialized medicine, where they begin with socialized medicine. And people are standing in line because it's rationed, right? Waiting for the kidney transplant. And what happens? Well, they don't actually allow a free market in organ sales and purchases, right? So there's a black market and there's corruption and there's favoritism. And who's on the list for getting a kidney and all that, right? So that is a long, I mean, from prohibition onward, there's a long history of corruption and bad things associated with government restricting. And I think, uh, Clark, you're absolutely right. I think I have found that one of the tragedies here is it's become increasingly difficult just to get in here legally. And I think that's improper. I mean, if we had our three part uh, filter, how difficult it is that to figure out whether someone's a terrorist a criminal or diseased, it shouldn't take that long. And I think part of it is based on quotas and yes, that makes people more inclined to try to get over illegally. I, all the time, I say to my liberty-loving friends, if you were, and you and I were in Ecuador, you or I were in Nicaragua or Venezuela, would you do anything you could to get into the United States? I would. I would try anything possible to get into the United States, not because I want to break the laws of the United States, but it would be because I love the United States which is actually back to David Kelly's point about, can you imagine the people who would go through all that just to get here? Uh, it's not a perfect litmus test, but it's not a bad one. It's not a bad filter alone, but I think it's totally tragic because yes, then the more you see illegal people coming in, the more you feed the argument of close the borders because look at this chaos at the border and it is totally, you mentioned coyotes. I mentioned human trafficking, the raping and, the abuse of children is disgusting. I think we have an opportunity actually to say, this is an argument against anarchy. We have our libertarian friends who split themselves between constitutionally limited government of the kind objectivists would endorse and anarchy. But the anarchy at the border is disgusting. 
There is anarchy at the border. It's not a managed border. It's not a rationally managed Ellis Island border. And the result is is despicable. The, the, the result is really, truly inhumane. And of course, there are libertarians, but apparently subsets of objectivists who say, who cares? Open the borders, even if there's gruesome shit going on. Sorry to swear there. But I, I've seen the evidence. It is really disgusting. And, it, and it's so unnecessary because this is a proper function of government and it's not doing it. So I don't know if that answered your question, Clark, but you're on to something, right? It's definitely, it's not the case when someone says, just come in here legally. What's wrong with you? Just go through the process. The process is as bureaucratic and as almost insurmountable as you can imagine. And I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave you with one more thing, Clark and others, that you guys might want to discuss. Is this a rights-based issue kind of the way Binswanger argued it, or is it a more social utility, a social value, so, uh, you know, utilitarian argument? You know, the utilitarian argument would be, let's decide, you know, who will most benefit America. You know, is it people who vote a certain way? We're certainly kind of saying that by saying, well, we won't want terrorists. We don't want criminals. We don't want the diseased. And so in a way, we are applying standards, right? Then the question is, are these objective standards or not? But, you know, the whole issue of visas for, say, high-tech immigrants who might work in Silicon Valley, there's a whole subsystem of quotas for, you know, <laughs> doctors and engineers coming from India. And it's so messed up because there's people in Silicon Valley, there are employers who will say, oh my God, let those people in so we can hire them because they're smart and they're brainiacs. But then there's other groups who say, we don't want them in because then they'll compete with us and they'll lower our <laughs> they'll lower our income. So, but notice how you could have like a social utility standard, which, you know, objectivism pretty much objects to, right? We want to look at people individually. We'll look at rights and things like that. The social utility view is I'm the central planner, from on high, I'm going to decide what the proper mix of our population and our labor force shall be. And, you know, do we need this or that? You see how it's it's kind of unseemly and immoral, it seems, and unprincipled to use that kind of social utility argument for who should come in or should not come in. So I'll open it up for discussion there. Versus the rights-based approach would be, we're not looking at the ultimate mix. We'll leave the mix to what it is. Just let people in as long as they're decent free people and we're not going to ask how they vote we're not going to ask about anything else and just let them you know what job they're going to take whether they're going to be on the dole or not just let them in um so that is a kind of divide in the debate i found good uh and uh jason uh, i mean <clears throat> kind of already partially answered my question dr salzman so i guess i wonder if we can go back to the um, I don't know if you know the story of Castle Garden. Is it feasible or even remotely feasible to go back to the the uh, model where the immigrant uh, the immigrant were is privatized, privately handled? So you know, Castle Garden was when it was consolidated, and like of course it was it was a big a big business back in the day in the 1800s and all that, and they were a lot of them were like taken and and some of them were hijacked, so to speak, or uh, you know taken captive and their stuff sold or, or and stolen and so forth. One uh, the um, Castle Garden Depot was was a you know a consolidated point for that, but there was an, like an actual placement, like a, like a job placement agency that was there, 
Uh-huh. And when, when people came in, they would then get placed and, and assigned to a location and they, then they would get hired. And, they, and if you, um, I don't know if, if that was done through like a brokerage of some kind or some kind of middleman. And then if you were done, if you're taken from that, then, um, you know, the, of course, if you were like a crappy the broker who brought in really crappy people, then you have a bad reputation and they'd stop hire or stop getting workers for you. And then a person who did well with it um, or they had a good reputation, the opposite happened. They, they were routinely uh, patronized. Well, I'm not familiar with that system, but it sounds intriguing. Uh, if there are, yeah, I guess what you're saying, uh, Jason, is they're kind of like private market or private oriented solutions. Are you saying, Jason, they were decent and not abusive, that they were like rational and respectful of the individual and they were just a brokering? Brokering in the sense of you come to this country, you have no idea what you're doing, I'm going to help you assimilate, but you'll pay me a fee for this or... I'm not exactly sure how that worked. Yeah, um, I know my, it- my family used to own it. And I, Castle Garden was actually leased to the city of New York in 1855. Okay. By, and then it became an immigrant depot. Then that was before Ellis Island. But that was the that was the first time they centralized everything. And if, if you know where I'm talking about, it's in Battery Park. It's a little fort. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. I love that. Okay. So for those of you who want to research it, I just wrote it down. I'm going to research it. Castle Garden. I like how you put it as an immigrant. What do you call it? An immigrant depot. I That's what it. it was called. It was, um, wow. I've got a picture. There's a picture okay. of the. It was called yeah. the Immigrant Depot, and it was literally. Um, so you'd go there, and I, my understanding is you went there, and let's say you. Well, let's give my family story. There was a farm, Conklin Farm, out on Long Island. They arrived. Um, my surname actually on that side was not Conklin; it was Kendera, but there's a long story behind that. But they arrived. Uh, Samuel Morse was there at the time. So did uh, Henry Conklin. He was there, and then they wow. took them out to the wow. Conklin Farm out on Long Island, wow. and. They were basically they were Bohemian farmers from Czech Republic. What is uh, Bohemia? What is the Czech Republic? Yeah, yeah. And then they and I, I love that because they, they came here with nothing to make something. Yeah. yeah. Today, a lot of immigrants come here with nothing and they take something back to wherever a location exits. Well, that's is, a good point. So, Jason, let me ask you, um, what do you? How would you know? Hearing that you know this history so well, what what do you say to the argument that I get if I bring up the Ellis Island model? They're going to give me the Friedman-type argument, Milton Friedman argument. They'll say, all well and good, Richard, all very interesting, but irrelevant to the current context. Because Ellis Island meant pre-welfare state. For the yeah, most. see that? that and I, they'll say, okay, so you're, in other words, you know what I mean, Jason? Something like they'll say, you're mixing categories. You're mixing categories or epics, and it's literally the Milton Friedman argument, namely, the Ellis Island model works if we don't have a full-fledged welfare state. Well, there's the puzzle. The puzzle today is we have a welfare state. And, and the other side, you know, will say, therefore, restrict immigration because they will. These are welfare magnets. Not just that. Um, what do they call them? They call them uh, the Democrats go out of their way and call them sanctuary cities. Well, what is a sanctuary? The sanctuary is otherwise you'd be a criminal. An amnesty city, yeah. Right. Because you just came into this country uh, illegally. And and so you come to San Francisco and you're a sanctuary. One, we won't um, put ice on you. We won't uh, deport you. And two, we'll give you social services. So that side goes completely the other way, bends over backwards and feeds the animosity of the other side, saying this is outrageous. This is disgusting. You're not just letting people in. You're coddling them, bringing them in, putting them on the voter rolls. And, so, you know, so what do you think of that, Jason? What is the argument that we have a mixed system today? Therefore, we shouldn't be for open immigration. 
that whole scenario just turns my stomach. Um, <laughs> well, it's, okay, it's, it's a slap in the face, the kick in the groin to the people that did it the hard way. Now, granted, the like you said, there's all these barriers to entry. There's all these different bureaucratic overladen things. If I move to England, for example, and you know, the first thing I'm going to ask, the one, the very first thing they're going to say is, you may not take welfare here when you're an immigrant. Ah. You can come here to get a, you can get a job. But it's a very, it says it right on the paperwork. Now I was on a student visa, so I didn't have to worry about that, and I was yeah, uh, on wow. pensions. I didn't know that. That's most countries. They will not let. They wouldn't even entertain the thought of you, even even within the first. And there's, um, let's say you get a, a residency, and then yeah, um, I have right to check citizenship uh, through Ancestry if I wanted to pursue that route and go back there if I want to. And it says right yeah. on there, within the first five years, I may not collect welfare. Wow, done wow. That. But that, okay, so they have a time frame. Of course, it's a safe time frame because if you say not for five years, that means you're going to get a job, and five years later, you're not likely to be on the rolls. Interesting. Yeah, right. they, make, they make it substantial. You got to pay in first before you can collect on the benefits on the other end. Wow, wow. For some and reason, I, that's been well. I wouldn't say for some reason. For reasons we can imagine, that's been struck down in the U.S. by the courts uh, for unequal treatment, literally violating the Fourteenth Amendment. Now, some people would argue, wait a minute, the Constitution should apply to citizens. But the the problem here, the terminology, as I looked into this, actually, the problem is this: the U.S. Constitution does not actually refer to citizens. It mm. refers to, it refers to persons, and that's a total loophole. It persons in the United States, persons. If you look it up, related yeah. to voting, related to how many districts, related to how many congressmen you get, how, it's very weird. I mean, maybe a probable problem in the writing of the constitution citizenship is different than just being here and there's a certain path to it obviously but it it makes it very murky because the advocates of uh let them all in know full well that once you get in that's it you're a person and the constitution protects you Under, yeah yeah anyway anyway well, the, notion, the, notion that, the notion that you get you get caught as you put it, you know, that, that you're going to get all these benefits. So I see people that work here that, that have been here for generations. They work hard, they struggle, they hit hard times or whatever. And the system is down and it just pushes you. It really beats the crap out of you. But a person who has earned nothing gets handed, you know, a red carpet. And, and um, I, I take that. I, I know there's probably, we probably hear the extreme exacerbated scenarios based on what the media says. They were given $450,000 or some crazy number I heard or something like that last year. I don't know how true that was, but the benefits were just a bit, to me, uh, extensive for somebody who didn't earn any of it. And then the builders, the ones who, like I said, the ones who came here did things the hard way. You got to remember, arriving in South Manhattan in, in 1857, it was a cesspool. I mean, it, yeah. it's disgusting. Yeah. This first thing you get encountered with the smell. The next thing you get encountered is the fact no one had bathed in Lord knows how long. Those ships were not nice, you know, these guys. So I can't even begin to imagine the odiferous uh, experience you're going to have at the border there, you know. And then, and then, you know, then you're going to go work on a farm that's probably, you know, Long Island was was you know country back then. Um, it, the, that's and you you did it the hard way. I mean, literally the hard way. They said, "Here's your plot of land. Go build your house over there, and here's some wood. Get have at it." And that's probably what they had handed to them. And they built a community, and that then. Now somebody comes in and gets it. Not only they get the community for free, they get a house for free, they get paid for free, and they get food for free and food stamps and everything else on the back of the person who did it the hard way, because that's the person who's built pay tax all this time. It really is a very nauseating scenario. Uh, I find that, and then and, and this entitlement as if it's as if we're somehow you know guilty of something for having it so good. I thought no, that took hard work to get there. But um, disenfranchising people in that manner, I find to be um, counter to nation building. It's it's naturally destructive. I like and that. I also, I, 
Yeah, I hate the, the narrative that uh, that nationalism. I don't think that applies when it comes to being nationalistic. Maybe not nationalism, but yeah, America does. When I, I posted earlier the thing by Teddy Roosevelt, being an American, that yeah. nationalism is not, you can't. It's not a racially bigoted thing because America is not any one race. Whereas you know, in, yeah. in France, yeah. being everyone's French or everyone's German or everyone's Chinese, that would be kind of bigoted to be a a nationalist in those regards. I still don't look down upon it because if in China, that's rightfully so. You're in China, but being I don't think it, it's. It's a um, it's it's not an apples to apples comparison. We talk about American nationalism because we just we don't our nationalism doesn't discriminate along ethnic origin or shouldn't. David Kelly, one of the David, one of the nice things I saw in your essay, not only this idea of my God, who would come here and what would their character be like? It's got to be something we want, something we welcome. But one of the other things you said in that essay, which I thought was very profound, is you said there's a myth. It's very common even today. You said, David, do you remember this? You said, there's a myth that the people who come are just consumers. They just <laughs> gobble up. They just gobble up things. And the American spirit, of course, worries about that. Hey, are they par these parasites? They're like locusts coming in. And you said something like, wait a minute. They also come with hands and minds and productive <laughs> and productive attributes and and how interesting that the anti-immigration people, forget the culture, forget the xenophobia, the idea that they're just consumers yeah. and not adding value, just taking, you know, consumption in the sense of just eating up things instead of producing things. And your view is, oh, wait a minute, what about the producers? They're, aren't they mostly producers? Why else are they coming here? They left a place that wouldn't let them produce. Or they left a place that they did produce and most of it was confiscated. Do you remember this, David? So yeah. you want to elaborate on that, that argument? Well, it's just, um, yeah, people do forget that. And um, I, I don't know. I don't have a shorthand explanation for why. Hmm. But, and it doesn't apply across the board. There are people desperate for workers and yeah. employers who are just looking for any, any live body uh, you yeah. can do the yeah. job, yeah, yeah, and um, uh, and that's where you get some of the um, uh, advocacy for Im opening immigration to some extent, at least for right, right, certain. You know, you mentioned Silicon Valley before; that's a prime example. Um, so, but I just want—I would add, just wanted to add, make yeah. one also point uh, uh, about the contrast between thinking in terms of individual rights and thinking in terms of social welfare or the libertarian yes, right. yeah. argument. Um, remember that, I, you know, an important aspect of objectivism, uh, of objectivist ethics, is that the moral is the practical. Right. So that the Indian um, brainiacs coming to Silicon Valley are not taking things away from any American who might have worked there. Yeah. If they are superior to what they do, and many of them are, as look at the CEOs of tech, high tech companies now. Yeah. Um, what they do is create opportunities for other people, and that's that. That's a win-win situation all around. So, um, I I would also dismiss the economic, you know, resentment and and more theoretical objections. Um, I think. I, as far as I can see, I'm not an economist, but as far as I can see, they don't really hold any water. The same argument, David, comes up in, uh, you've probably seen this, in environmentalism and worries about population. When yeah. people say, 
oh my god oh there's eight billion people oh what happens when there's 10 billion they think of them as consumers eating yeah. up eating up the planet not creative minds um finding resources julian simon called it the ultimate resource is what the human mind reason creativity and it doesn't take uh everyone to be like that we know the atlases of the world the pyramid of ability suggests it's a small fraction of the population that creates these things okay so they need to be free they need to be rewarded they need to be selfish but all else equal, anyone who says, I really worry about more people on this planet, they often have that premise, David. And it's the same in immigration. I yeah. think they're, I think they're just going to be, uh, you know, cookie monster. They're just going to be consumers. <laughs> and they're not going to add anything to Sesame Street. So something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, yeah. that's right. Um, I mean, you know, it, it seems so obvious. Anyone with a mouth to consume has two hands to produce. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. If they're free and motivated, they did. There is a condition. Yeah. Um, that's the concern is... of the. That isn't that the concern of Jason and others and Friedman of the welfare state? If yeah. you if you tell if you have a big neon sign saying, "Come and consume, <laughs> come and live off of others, come and be a parasite." That's the worry, isn't it? Uh, it's of some. I don't know if it's totally genuine or not. That's not, you've got to remember, Dr. Sussman, that's not a hard sell in a lot of the world. You know, if you look at, you know, the, um, because a lot of them, the resources were controlled, you know, um, ownership of the production or means of production were, were also controlled by the government or some, some hierarchy thing. So the idea that you can just create on your own is a very free free market way of thinking that yeah. I hate yeah. to say very, very exclusive to the West. I mean, it's, it's not something I come across traveling yeah. further east. I'm like, well, just start this. Like, yeah. Well, that's a good, yeah, what do you think of that? And I'm like, because it's how I think. I know what keyword I think, um, but I'm allowed to. Where they, these, a lot of societies they oppress this idea, um, you know, that, that you can just do that a free enterprise way of thinking. Sure. I wonder if there are any. I don't know if we have hands. Uh, let me know, Scott. But just to throw out another idea, any thoughts on why other countries who were very anti-immigrant get no criticism? I mean, it's very well known in Asia and elsewhere, Japan. Or look at the Nordic countries. There's some exceptions to this in, in emergency situations or refugees, you know, fleeing Syria or something like that. But it, it is, it, it is uh, you find a uniquely critique of America, that Americans are somehow nativist, xenophobes, mm -hmm. anti- They're using guilt. But look at all the other countries of the world who allow no one in. Be, you know what for whatever reason they must they're undermining our wages or they don't look like us and america is even in the today's context which is very mixed and not the ellis island model even so americans are seemingly very tolerant and welcoming it seems to me why do other countries not get this criticism as being would, racist xenophobes because only the number one yeah well, say, yeah they don't if you, it's it's former it's former colonies. I notice uh, that at least oh. that's what I've seen. It is former co colonies or former colonies. Um, so like the African countries, for example, that were once col colonial possessions, they're of course uh, closed off and not criticized because they they view colonies are col colonists as invaders. Versus here, we're a nation of colonists, and it's kind of um, 
at least I, I, I think that's kind of why you don't hear it. You don't hear them getting the criticism as much because I mean, who really wants to move to, I don't know, North Korea. Yeah, so North Korea does not have an immigration problem. <laughs> and, and and they're not going to be accused of being racist xenophobes. Uh, okay, but it's because you, you suck. Yeah. But I, yeah, so I, no one wants to go there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I have it's, one. It, it, is, it is bizarre in a certain way, though, isn't it? Like, the, yeah. the, the however mixed we are today, the most tolerant, liberal, wonderful humanitarian country gets uh, smeared all the time as a racist, xenophobic, nativist country, and we're the most welcoming. To the point of a massive anarchy on the southern border mm. and and actually kind of inhumane treatment of a bunch of people. And it's okay with Americans. Seems to be. That's how tolerant we are. And, and Anyway, I just throw that out there. Did you guys get Rich the email? I'm sorry, Doug. I'm sorry, uh, Scott. Go ahead. Richard, uh, I have one. Um, what about the idea that the Ellis Island model, It it's premised on the idea that there's a certain level of civilizational self-confidence that maybe even still existed during Reagan when David was writing that, that uh. <laughs> arguably does not exist today. And we're holding fast to this principle while to Peacock's point, they're, they're using it as a bludgeon just to get votes uh, and, and using our own values and principles about the ideals of open immigration against. Oh, us. they love to use it against. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure how to answer that question. That's a good point. You're saying, once again, the category mix. Uh, it's nice to defend the Ellis Island model, Salzman, but one thing is we didn't have a welfare state. Second, we didn't have this love of civilization. Well, we had a love of civilization then. So we welcome the more civilized, fleeing, barbaric tyrannies. And we don't have that today. I don't. I don't know how to answer that, Scott. I, I would put it this way. I have a hard time believing that the people streaming over the border uh, on the South, mostly in the South, are anti-Western Civ. I mean, maybe they are. They're not going to be as pro-Western Civ, say, as a 19, I don't know, 1920 German in immigrant. But I'm not as pessimistic as to say, oh, my God, the barbarians are at the gate. Because that's really the argument. Ed Powell it's and not others, even that, you think it's about that, it, that, you think they're all barbarians. It's not even that. It's that our lack of yeah. cultural self-confidence is what's encouraging the wrong kind these days. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, okay, so America has lost its confidence in its ideals. Right. Uh, and yay, hey, gone, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. We've therefore, okay, I'm not. I'm just following the logic, and therefore, our immigration policy has degraded, de de degenerated into let anyone in. But it still doesn't answer David Kelly's point that the ones coming are still they have to be largely decent people because it's an arduous, ridiculous, and crazy venture to leave your country and come here. I don't know. I'm not so sure that's a good argument, Scott, but it's, it's almost like everyone. Is that, it, is that its own litmus test? What, go ahead. Different people have different motives. You're right. Yeah, There's a spectrum. Right. And and yes, yeah. I, I think that even to the extent that you could say it's a plot of the Democrats to you know take a monopoly on power like Peikoff was alluding to, 
uh, that that it, it to some extent fails. You see Hispanic votes starting to go for Trump or the, yeah, yeah. you know, the Cuban vote uh, being solid Republican because of their own history with communism. Yeah, I, I have long said to Republicans who make this argument, we can't let them in because they'll vote Democrat. I say to them, what is wrong with your arguments? Why can't you convince them? Do you know how fast the, the Democrats would change their immigration policy if the polls showed up, like you're suggesting, Scott, oh, my God, these people are going to vote for Trump or these people are going to vote Republican or these people are going to vote on the right. There are in the community, as you know, on all these immigration communities, people who will say in you know the Mexican legal immigrant community, they'll say, I hate Ill illegal immigration. They'll say, I resent the fact that I worked here to get in legally and now all these people are coming in illegally. Those are within the, you know, Hispanic and Latino community. So, uh, yeah, you could argue that, as in other areas, the Republicans lack confidence in their ability to convince people to vote for them. And why not look at the, I don't like the hordes coming over the border with no processing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that. But I'm saying to Republicans, why can't you convince them to be Republicans? Sure. I but it's a hard, it's got to be a hard task, right? So they go right into the public schools. They go right into the bar, you know, into the uh, ghettos and the barrios of Los Angeles and el elsewhere. And where are they going to go other than into these democratic precincts where they're converted into, as Leonard said, they're converted into Democrats who vote for tyranny. It's very dispiriting. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to Clark. He's got his hand up. Yes, I was uh, on this particular uh, point. I was just going to mention that, you know, down I'm down here in Texas where, you know, it seems like we've just got lots of more people moving here. And the debate among a lot of Republicans, I seem to to know more Republicans. Now, they're not like us, but they're Republicans. And so there's just this big debate. It's like Texas seems to be kind of slowly gravitating getting bluer and bluer, uh, especially the cities. And so the debate among Republicans, well, is it is it the upper middle class Californians coming, yeah. you know, the woke people coming, you know, because they're leaving that, you know, California. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Korea. obviously it's not Korea, but, you know, it, it's not, uh, you know, they're leaving California for for greener pastures. You know, is that why Texas is seems to be kind of slowly getting bluer or is it the you know the immigrants from the the northern triangle countries down in central america well i mean obviously i don't think any of those folks coming from central america or mexico they don't even know what woke is so they're not gonna they're not on board with that and and right. actually as right. someone who's actually i've actually substitute taught at yeah. some of the schools it's amazing how quickly these the, the children, you know, whose parents uh, have only been, in, you know, from from Central America, they've only been in the country. You know, they were born in Central America. They've only been in the U.S. for for maybe a couple of years. Believe me, they all know English fluently. They know all you know, they know who Taylor Swift is and Selena Gomez. And in fact, they talk just like the American kids. I mean, so it, it doesn't take long at all today for mm. these for these kids to be, become completely assimilated, you know, it's it's not like when Ayn Rand came, you know, he didn't have TikTok and Instagram. So I'm sure it, it would have taken a lot longer. But it, but anyway, the point is, I, I mean, I'm just I agree with you, Richard. I don't I don't think I think the people who are coming from 
from Central America, you know, they want to work hard for 12 bucks an hour. And, you know, that's that's not a problem, is it? I mean, you know, that's they just really want to work hard for $12 an hour. And actually, just to wrap up on this, since I'm, I'm getting long winded, the, the Californians I meet here, a yeah. lot of them, they left California because, you know, they it was just too woke. It was and the economy was too sclerotic. Right. So so really. I'm not exactly. And, you know, honestly, the truth is uh, Texas is still red. It's red as hell. And, you know, obviously it, it's going to be fundamental ideas like like we've all said before. You know, really, I would say Texas is maybe 25 years away from where, you know, behind, but, you know, the, the bad ideas that that hit California and New York first. You know, it's the same. We have the same bad ideas down here in Texas. We just have we've had we have more time. So obviously we need you know, we need these better ideas that the Atlas Society is is promoting just to stop. You know, the, the big thing, of course, in Texas you, is, you know, please, yeah, please don't California. My my Texas is what you see on, on the sign. So. <laughs> I like those comments, Clark. I, I especially like your idea that, hey, listen, ideas matter more than bodies moving across borders. But it's also true. It's hard to believe if you tell Americans today, or especially the young, that California was Reagan country. What the hell? Reagan, who was despised today as a, quote, neoliberal who brought us closer to capitalism in the 80s, along with Maggie Thatcher and others, um, he won the governorship twice in this, what, 66, 60s, 70s. And um, the fact that California was solidly Republican and delivered up Reagan and delivered up Reagan to the point where he could win two landslides nationally, it's not that way anymore. And the question is whether it's not that way anymore because of immigration. The Democrats certainly look at it that way. They look at it as like, oh, my God, I'm glad we let all these immigrants in to go into flood into California and turn it Democrat. And what's the next step? Arizona. Arizona is what? Goldwater country, Barry Goldwater. My God, 1964, Barry Goldwater, who gave rise to Reagan, right? Goldwater, who in many ways was more libertarian than Reagan, supported by Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand supported Goldwater, not Reagan. And then Arizona is moving closer and closer, closer from Republican to Democrat. And it's almost like if you look at the Democrats, they're like, we got California, then we got Arizona. Now we're going to get Texas. Texas is next. If you get California, Arizona, and Texas to, to hell with New York, Florida, and elsewhere, you would never lose another election. The number of people in California and Texas alone will deliver you the presidency every time. So it could be this is a kind of a you know a kind of a more pessimistic view of what's happening, but reflecting of what uh, Leonard Peikoff said. They want to turn Texas Democrat, and and they're uh, and that's where the border is. That's why they care more about the southern border being porous, say, than the uh, Canadian border. They don't care about the Canadian border because whoever comes from Canada, you know, they're not necessarily Democrats. They're just uh, usually uh, entertainers, <laughs> you know, like Celine Dion or David Letterman or whoever came from all these people who came from Canada. Canada, they don't turn the country left wing. But what do you think of that, Clark, that they're hoping that Texas becomes Democrat? The, the, the sheer electoral college votes are so huge from California and um, Texas that if you add that to the mix of Illinois, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, 
solidly uh, Democrat that the Democrats would never lose another election, at least at the federal level. Well, you know, I think I think you're right, uh, Richard, uh, on that point. So I guess that means uh, that, you know, the Atlas Society, those of us uh, who are in the Atlas Society and those of us who support it, we've you know, we've got our work cut out for us because because the truth is, like like I mentioned uh, before, it, it's, you know, uh, Texas is just, I would say, 25 years behind mm-hmm. You know, wow. California, New York. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we've always yeah. we're down here in the South. We've always been behind. Now, sometimes that's good. Uh, sometimes that's not so good. And in this case, you know, it's just, you know, all the bad ideas. I mean, honestly, a lot of a uh, lot of woke ideas uh, happen here and especially here in Austin. Where I'm at, you know, uh, it's it's very, uh, very blue. So um, so th- that's so really- if you look, if you look at the history of the governors, it's almost like you're saying, well, what's the equivalent of Reagan in California? Bush, Rick Perry. Who's the current guy? Abbott. Abbott. They're all Republicans. But you're saying that's going to be uh, that's going to be the Reagan of the 60s and 70s. They're going to be gone in the next decade or so. You're not going to have Republican governors in Texas anymore. You're going to have Texas go Democrat. That's kind of what you're predicting. Well, I mean, I wouldn't I would. Again, I think we we have time. <laughs> like I say, we're you know, we're probably 25 years or so. And, and again, it, it, it really is ideas. And I would just finish up by saying you, you know someone like greg abbott i'm I'm sorry he's he's uh you know, oh, know. kind of a me too me too republican know. you know he's yeah. i mean he's yeah. a politician first yeah, and he's, last. And, yeah, he's he's no Ray, he's no reagan i know that. right right yeah. unfortunately so so he's you know it's like they're just going a little bit slower towards you know in other words he's not really standing athwart history and yelling no. stop no. Really- oh, you're quoting Bill Buckley there. Wow. Okay. There now notice also after Reagan, Duke Majin, George Duke Majin, and then Arnold. Pete, Pete Ar- Wilson. Uh, Schwartz. Yeah, Pete- uh, yes, right. Oh, Pete Wilson, right. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger. But notice also the dilution, if you will, from Reagan to Arnold, they were Republicans but a, a, a diluted form of it over time. Right. Notice, right? And same thing with uh, Texas. I forget, I, I forget yeah. who was there before GW, but GW was no Reagan. But even so, from, Re- from GW to Abbott, notice the same dilution? It's going downhill. In terms right. of saying in terms of the quality of the Republican and the how capitalist they are. But n- now all, it's also interesting that Abbott and others have this uh, very pugnacious policy of transporting immigrants up to, out of Texas, up into sanctuary cities, up into Martha's Vineyard and up into Nancy Pelosi's neighborhood. That's very funny. It's it's cute and it's clever, but I'm not sure it's going to stem the tide. But it's almost as if they're saying, just because you come to Texas doesn't mean you stay in Texas. How about we ship you to uh, other parts of the United States. I don't, I'm not sure Abbott and others are doing this to make sure Texas doesn't go Democrat. They're doing it more from the standpoint of we can't afford uh, breaking the social welfare system here. But um, any thoughts on whether that's a legitimate uh, strategy or not? That there's well, one way to honestly, fight this is just redistribute them out of Texas. 
you know, again, to me, that's more a gimmick. And, and you know, it, it's yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that anybody in this room doesn't agree with. But really, you know, it's ideas, it's ideas. And unfortunately, like you, you mentioned how California has has <laughs> went from Reagan to Duke Majin to Wilson to Arnold and, and yeah. Texas. It's, it's kind of the same. It's ultimately, you know, really it's philosophy, it's major ideas. And yeah, Abbott, I mean, I guess Abbott's better than Elizabeth Warren or, or some of the other or AOC. But, you know, again, he's kind of like, you know, a Me Too Republican. It's like, you know, he accepts all the, the bad premises of, of all the statism. It's just he's going to he's going to take you there in a much slower time time frame. Great. Well, um, this was a uh, great topic. I want to thank everyone who joined us and who uh, participated. I uh, wanted to tell you about uh, upcoming events we have at the Atlas Society. Uh, tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, the Atlas Society asks Akira the Don who just did some uh, anthem and objectivist related videos. And then uh, they're going to have uh, the DeSantis Newsom debate tomorrow night. And then Friday at 7 p.m., uh, Richard is going to be back with our CEO, Jag, and Abby Berenger for, uh, you know, an analysis of that debate. So really looking forward to that. But uh, again, we want to thank everyone for joining us, and uh, we hope to see you at our events in the future. Thank you, Scott. David, thanks, thanks for joining. Take care, everybody. Great. Great to see you again, David. Thanks for joining.